Welcome to About Empathy, a podcast that focuses on patient and healthcare provider experiences. Thanks for joining us for the second season of About Empathy. This season, we have engaging conversations with patients and informative discussions with healthcare providers. Each week, we will dive into a topic that we hope inspires you to have empathic interactions. I'm Dr. Dori Sekracia, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Dr. Irene Ying. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. We are physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is invaluable wisdom in the stories of the people we care for and work with. This podcast gives voice to both the patient and healthcare provider experience, while also reflecting on how we can learn from these stories to inform our practice. Andrea Warnick is a registered psychotherapist and educator on the topic of grief in children. Recognizing that grief looks different in children and that it's important for the healthy development of a child, Andrea puts an amazing amount of empathy and compassion at the forefront of her work with children and their families. Andrea, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. We thought we would start with asking you, what do you think the big misconceptions are around helping a child to grieve? I think one of the biggest misconceptions we're contending with is that people have an idea that it's their job to protect children from grief as opposed to prepare them and to really like give them the tools and strategies to navigate grief, which is a very human experience. And I imagine just as when you're going through a tough time, you even want to protect children more. It's your natural instinct. And yet to try and teach them those life skills is something we have to teach adults. Exactly. It's a learning process to learn how to suffer in healthy ways. Right? And I think this myth, and exactly as you said, Dory, like when you're going through difficult things, I think parents, well, all adults, their protective instincts get yes. even stronger. Right. And so a lot of people, for really good reasons, it's usually, this is the irony, it's usually coming from a really good place of loving kids and want to protect them. And then we go into this like, okay, so we're going to withhold information or we're not going to tell them about the hard thing that's happening which actually makes it more difficult for them. When you do palliative care, and I think we've all talked about this before, children know things. They're always so much smarter than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. They're very perceptive. And as you've talked about, if we don't tell them, gently tell them the truth, they will make something up in their minds. And they're little detectives, yes. right? The number of kids I work with who I find out, I ask them, I'm like, so how did you find out about your parents' cancer diagnosis? And the number of them who've read it on their parents' cell phone, have seen text messages, have gotten into emails, or just overheard conversations between right. neighbors and things like that. So when they sense that something difficult is going on in the family, they start looking for clues. I mean, some of them will get an accurate idea, but some of them get really inaccurate ideas. And exactly like you said, they use their imaginations. They start putting pieces together, which often aren't inaccurate. And quite often the conclusion they come to is that they're somehow at fault for what's happening right. in the stress in the family. What's your experience been with children hearing later on or much later in a diagnosis or closer to end of life mm -hmm. about what's happening? What's your experience with that? The difficulty in that is now you've got kids finding out this really difficult things happening, but quite often I find that kids, especially once they get to be sort of six, seven, eight and older, one of the first things I find that they'll ask parents when they hear about a diagnosis is, well, how long have you known for? And so when they realize yeah. that actually the adults in their life have known this information for far longer than they have, it really undermines the trust as well. 
And that's where, again, it's so sad because it's a really unintended consequence of a parent trying to protect the child, but not realizing that what they've done is undermine the trust. And so now you've got kids feeling really worried that things are going on that they don't know about. And on top of the grief, we need to rebuild that trust for them. I went to one of your workshops recently, which was amazing. And one of the activities you got us to do was to write down memories of us as children and what was a good memory and what was a bad memory. And essentially, like across the board, all the good memories were being included and all the bad memories were when we weren't told things or we weren't invited to things. So there was a lot of themes around lack of closure as well. So the fact that it really reverberates into adulthood was really striking to me. I love that activity. It's a great activity. And no matter how many people I do it with, it's very consistent. Like the beneficial things when adults are remembering their childhood experience of grief is when they were included, when adults told them the truth, right? There was someone who had also said, you know, like my people cried with me. My parents cried with me. And people were able to model healthy grief and do it with the kids as opposed to when people are like, well, I didn't get to go to the funeral or I accidentally overheard that my grandfather had cancer. That doesn't usually work out well for the kids. The other thing that I've heard you say is to focus on the importance of language and words that are used. And so I've heard you say, when we use words that link a serious illness with a battle terminology or fighting terminology, and then when someone's lost their battle with their illness, what's the impact on kids of that type of wording? Yeah, I mean, language is so powerful. And I think it's really important to perceive that or to understand that for a lot of kids, they will take that, interpret that as my person didn't try hard enough. And I think across the board, we should be avoiding that language because it's not helpful for adults who are undergoing disease processes either. But for kids, I've had so many kids where I ask them, like, what's your understanding of your mom's illness or your dad's death? And their understanding is often, well, they didn't try hard enough or if they fought harder. And that's very much a byproduct of this language that we use that really makes cancer or other illnesses as well seem like a fighting process that how hard you fight actually is indicative in any way of whether you survive or don't. And that's the misconception that comes out of that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of language, I love the fact that you use my person when you're describing. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you use that language? As opposed to loved one. Exactly, like, yes. And so I think we have to be careful because quite often I'll hear people say, well, you know, so-and-so's loved one and everything. But I'm so cognizant from the work that I do that there's a lot of kids who have family members or people in their life who aren't actually loved ones. Or it's just a very ambiguous relationship and maybe they love them, but they're also so angry at them. And that's why I never want to make assumptions about the fact that a relationship is a loving relationship. It may be that a child's even been abused in some way by the person. And this is where I find in the work that I do with families after death has happened, I always like to really normalize too, even if it was a close loving relationship. You know, we all talk about all the good stuff about people after they die. And I'll always say to kids, like, is there anything you don't miss about your person as well to normalize the fact that for this kid, depending on the relationship, maybe there's a lot of relief. Or maybe it's just that there's also relief even if it was a loving relationship because so much of the family's energy had gone into the caregiving and everything. And maybe they're able to bring friends back from school and things like that as well. That's such a good point. Mm -hmm. I also think when you talk about language, I have lots of parents or grandparents who want to talk to children. So they get the idea that I don't want to protect them. I want to include them, but they worry about well, what are the words I use? As of last week, someone said, you mean I can say the word cancer? Because we don't teach people 
that that's okay. Like they wanted the child to know, but they didn't want to harm them. Right. And so what is the right language? Right. And language around saying death and dying. Yes. Yeah. As absolutely. opposed to right. euphemisms. Yeah. And I think that these pieces are again rooted in that desire to protect and thinking yeah. like it'll make it harder for them. And I'm so glad that you're coaching the family to use the right words. Even when kids are really little, 18 months, two years old, three years old, I'll say, use the right language. Call it ALS. Don't just say, daddy's sick, daddy's sick, because the next time somebody else comes home sick with a cold or flu. I mean, for kids, most sicknesses are things that totally get spread across the classroom and from one person to another. I'm often saying, you know, one of the only good things I know about cancer or ALS is you can't catch it from someone. You can hug them and you can kiss them. You're not going to get cancer from them. And really making that clear, but naming the illness from the get-go. But then even when we're talking about death and dying, we use so many euphemisms to sort of yeah. shroud it and soften it. And that's confusing for kids, right? Sometimes people refer to death as being like a long sleep. Totally terrifying for kids. Like try putting your three-year-old down for a nap after that. Completely scares them. Even when we say things like, oh, we lost grandpa last week. I've had so many kids jump up and be like, well, I will find him. Right? And just recognizing that kids don't understand those nuances mm -hmm. and that calling it death and dying and helping them understand what those words mean can be very helpful for kids. Do you have ideas on how we can get this message across in a broad way? Like you're one person and you do amazing work, but you're one person who sees so many people a day. Has anybody in education field or anything approached you? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we actually did a, a needs assessment for one of the areas in Southern Ontario and realized that as important as it is to have like formal grief supports for kids and families when someone's grieving a dying or a death, it's even more important that we have like everybody in society having a certain level of knowledge, particularly in healthcare right across the board. Right. So this is like family physicians, nurses, social workers in the ER, in oncology, of course, palliative care, but also in education right? Just that in schools, we need to have a shared level of grief literacy because this is where kids are all of the time. I mean, I think it's really a social justice issue that we're not saying, okay, this is just the job for the children's grief counselors to support kids and know how to talk about this because then we'd all be in big trouble. There's right. nowhere near enough children's grief counselors to do this. It's a shared responsibility of a society. And that's where I often find myself reminding families like, People used to die at home all the time. Like, where do you think the kids were? Mm. They were there. They were seeing it, mm -hmm. right? We modeled the grief process. They knew what death looked like. And that's not the case anymore. But kids are very much equipped to be able to be at the bedside as somebody's dying. And it's all of our responsibility to know some really basic principles, such as there's a strong body of literature really heavily emphasizing the importance of being honest with kids when somebody's seriously ill or dying or when a child themselves is seriously ill or dying and including them in funerals, ceremonies, at the bedside as someone's dying. This isn't unstudied. Like 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have the literature, but now we really do. And so we know what best practice is, but it's very much about how do we disseminate the information. There's actually a lot of school projects going on right now where a lot of school boards are saying like, hey, we want more death education, which is great. And hospitals reaching out and saying, we need education in this. And I think the important part too is you saying that it's all of our responsibility as well, because I think perhaps in the adult medical world or space, you would say, oh, well, that's not in my job description. That's not what I do. I haven't been trained in this. And so people don't feel comfortable talking about it or even approaching it. 
But I think the principles that you talk about, kind of the basics around honesty and openness and not using euphemisms, I think that's something that's accessible to everyone. Yeah, you don't have to be a children's grief therapist to do that. And that's where I think if you look at any adult hospital, probably nobody's got on their job description Mm. to help kids understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's where like, I'd love to see that it's a standard of practice that anytime someone's getting a serious diagnosis or been in a serious accident, whatever the situation is, that they're asked, like, are there any children in your life who will be affected by this? If so, would you like some guidance in supporting them? You teach a lot about the four C's. Could you tell our audience a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the four C's are four common concerns kids have when somebody's got a serious illness or someone has died, right? So the first one being, did I cause it? And one day I'll honestly write a book about all the things kids have told me about how they caused the illness or the death, right? It might be, you know, I stressed my mom out so much or she yelled at me to clean up my room so much and then she got throat cancers. But really letting kids know that they're not responsible in any way for the illness or the death. And then the other being like, can I catch it? And I think that's often what happens again when we're not using the language of the illness, when we're just saying, well, daddy's sick, daddy's sick, as opposed to daddy has a brain tumor, daddy has cancer. And so letting them know that it's not contagious as long as it's not, can I cure it? I've had kids make packs with higher powers that family members didn't even know that they had saying like, if you keep my mom alive, like I'll never fight with my sibling again. And of course they fight. Mm Often later, like months down the road, their narrative is I broke my pact, my mom died as a Mm. result, feeling very much responsible. But the other one that I think is so important, even when there's not an illness in the family, but it's heightened when there is, is who will take care of me? And one of the biggest fears for kids is a fear of abandonment, that they'll be left to fend for themselves. And this is where I really encourage people, whether someone's just been diagnosed, certainly if somebody's died, and even when you've got two healthy parents, to be able to say, you know, most likely one of us will be able to take care of you until you don't need to be taken care of anymore. But if for any reason that couldn't happen, here's who would take care of you and let kids know who their guardians are. I always want to make sure kids are comfortable with who their guardians are, you know, and just be able to let them know that they won't be abandoned and left to fend for themselves. And that brings down so many kids' anxieties. That's great advice. So Andrea, we always finish our podcast with the same statement for you to complete, if only they knew. What do you wish that health professionals knew about your experience? If only they knew, you know, that kids have so much more capacity to really deal with these complex issues than we think they do. Or if only they knew that kids do so much better when they're prepared for a death in their life, as opposed to when they're not. And that's where as a general rule, I say like, there's never a too early to start talking to kids about these things. There is a too late. Yeah. Right. And quite often, I'm sure all of us around this table are contending with the too late and what that looks like. But there's really never a too early. I also think that, you know, if only they knew that kids grieve really differently than adults do. I find quite often one of the things that's holding adults back from telling them about a serious illness or that somebody's dying is that they're really worried that kids will just be in the trenches of grief and won't enjoy their childhood and they won't have fun. And once a lot of families enter into those conversations with kids and realize like, yeah, they'll be totally devastated sometime, but a lot of the time they're gonna be running around playing and having fun. And that might be 17 minutes after you told them that dad's actually gonna die from his illness. And that just like blows adults' minds. They're not expecting it. And that's where I just find kids do a phenomenal job of really balancing deep joy and deep sorrow in a way that few adults can. 
And I find when adults know and understand that, they become more willing to have the bigger conversations with kids. And to tell adults that that's normal, that it's normal that your child went out and played and was happy, it doesn't mean that they didn't get what you said. It doesn't mean that they're not close to the person, yeah. that they don't love the person. Right. And I think the thing is, too, for adults to really learn that it's not their job to fix their children's heartbreak, because that's a big part of it. I find that often adults are very focused on the conversation, and so we help give them those pieces, and there's some resources and stuff and how to navigate the conversations. But the other piece is how do you just be in the heartbreak with your kids, right? How do you bear witness to their suffering and not quickly try to move them mm. or distract them by like, okay, right. let's go to a movie. Let's go to Disney. Let's, you know, yeah. and just be like, yeah, this is really hard and build up the child's confidence that they can feel really hard feelings and live through those feelings and still enjoy their life too. Wise words. I think it's something even adults need to learn so we can impart that to our Absolutely. children. Thank you so much, Andrea. That was wonderful. Thanks for having me, guys. We are going to take a short break. You are listening to About Empathy. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring. Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them. No referral is necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. Visit wellspring.ca. About Empathy is made possible through an education research and scholarship grant from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and a medical humanities grant that is jointly funded by postgraduate medical education at the University of Toronto, as well as the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Sunnybrook. Welcome back to About Empathy. So it was wonderful having Andrea here. I feel like there was a lot of information in a short amount of time. What were some of the main points that you both thought came through? I loved how she said, you know, there's no such thing as preparing a child too early, but there is such a thing as preparing them too late. Like, I think that's a message I'm always reminded of whenever I hear her speak. And she didn't mention it in the interview this time, but one of the really concrete suggestions she had for me once was, if we want to bring the children in to visit their person in hospital, but we're worried about how they're going to react to how the person looks like attached to tubes and everything is, she said, take a picture and show the kids at home because it's far less, I guess, scary or threatening. So then they have a mental image of what to expect and it makes it a lot easier for them to come into the hospital. So I really like that advice from her that I heard once. It's a great idea. I also just wanted to emphasize the point about language and the words that we use. And so I've heard Andrea say the story a few times about how there was a child that she was counseling. And when they came back from the funeral, they had said, oh, my dad's head was there too. And Andrea said, well, what are you talking about? Well, Andrea, you said that the body was going to be there. I didn't realize that the head was going to be there too. Yes. And just how kids take things so literally yes. and how concrete they are. And so just kind of really checking in and seeing the words that we're using, but also what are they taking away from the words? And she says, try not to say I'm sorry, because I think to adults, we oftentimes will say, I'm sorry that your loved one is gone or has died. But children, because they take it literally they'll think that the doctors or the nurses did something wrong. The other thing that I have seen firsthand that she mentioned briefly was the idea that kids can really 
move between grief and happiness very quickly. She uses the analogy of like jumping puddles. And I saw this once with a patient of mine with two young children. And after my patient died, the kids came and said goodbye to their mom and then went downstairs and started playing again. And this was earlier on in my palliative care career. And I was like, oh, that's so strange. They must have not really been that close. And after speaking to Andrea, I realized now that couldn't have been further from the truth, right? It's just that kids are able to balance those two things a lot better than adults. And we run the very big risk of essentially telling them or messaging to them that they're being bad if they're not sad all the time. And I think that's one of the things I will bring up all the time now when I'm counseling family members around, hey, you might look for this, that your kids will be sad and then they'll be happy but reinforcing that that's totally normal and you want them to be able to balance both of those things. I think that's really important because everything she teaches us on how to speak with children, I think helps us when we speak with adults as well. That's so true. Because we kind of have a world where it's a bit grief illiterate and a lot of adults struggle with how do I grieve what is normal grief The more we talk to children about it, I think the more we're teaching ourselves as well. And just normalizing the idea that you can be both happy and sad in the same day, in the same hour, in the same half hour is a really good concept. Mm -hmm. And I've heard Andrea suggest too that when she's talking to children is to bring the adult or adults in their life also into that conversation because you're equipping the kids, but you're also equipping the people in their life, their person or persons about what's happening. That's right. And I think that that just helps everyone. Mm-hmm. I think Andrea's also often pointed us to the fact that we don't all have to be experts and that it's important to kind of look out there and see what resources there are. And I think there are some good resources mm-hmm. online. Canadian Virtual Hospice, along with Andrea, worked together to put together a website called kidsgrief.ca that has lots of helpful videos and resources for families. Families really appreciate that information and her own website, andreawarnick.com, I think, yes. I find that parents really love being able to read some of the information and it helps them to bring questions to our session so that we can talk about the information they Mm -hmm. found. Mm -hmm. I think it's always nicer for me to help parents know how to speak to their children versus them saying, can you talk to my children? I think it's just nicer to work with them to know Mm -hmm. how they can speak to them. And Andrea brought up the idea, you mentioned already, Giovanna, that idea of language. And I just always tell them, don't worry about anything other than being very gently honest use the right words. Like if they have cancer, say cancer, and just ask them questions. They will ask age-appropriate questions, and then you'll give age-appropriate answers. So listen to them, be gently honest. And I think that helps parents. It makes them less nervous. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of great information from Andrea that I hope was of value to our listeners. So thankful that she could come. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to the second season of About Empathy. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. Subscribe to About Empathy and rate our podcast. It helps others to find us. Please share our podcast with your health professional colleagues and friends. Our website is aboutempathy.com. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the site.
About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dora Sakaracha, and Irene Yang. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner.